The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, January 25th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The word robot was coined 100 years ago today in a play about robots taking over the world. Good thing that hasn't happened yet, right? The story behind the moon rock in President Biden's newly redesigned Oval Office and the first known tyrannosaur embryo fossils have been found shedding new light on the T-Rex's cousins. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. On this day in 1921, a play premiered in Prague called R.U.R., and it told the story of humanoid robots produced in a factory out of synthetic organic materials who eventually end up staging a rebellion and causing the human race to become extinct. It's the kind of story that would get repeated ad nauseum throughout the 20th century as fears of robots and later computers grew, but this play, called Rossum's Universal Robots in English, remains a standout to this day for one major reason. It coined the term robot. Prior to popular Czech intellectual Karl Čapek penning the play, robot was not in the public vernacular. Words like android and automaton were, but robot was basically created by Čapek. Quoting the MIT press reader, The word itself derives from the Czech word robata, or forced labor, as done by serfs. Its Slavic linguistic root, rob, means slave. The original word for robots more accurately defines androids, then, in that they were neither metallic nor mechanical, end quote. Because, yes, the robots in Chopik's play were meant to look just like humans and made of organic material, convenient for the medium of a play. So not necessarily what we'd call a robot today, but the term stuck nonetheless. In part because the idea of what a robot is, what fiction says it is, what the public views it as, and what engineers create are sometimes all a bit different, but also constantly changing and building off of each other. Using today's anniversary of the term robot as a jumping-off point, journalist Christopher Mims wrote in the Wall Street Journal, assessing where we stand vis-a-vis an all-out robot rebellion and takeover. The first thing to note is that there are far more robots out there performing regular tasks than you may realize if you haven't been paying close attention to robotics. Quoting the Wall Street Journal, In 2019, 373,000 industrial robots were sold and put into use, according to the International Federation of Robotics, a not-for-profit industry organization that conducts an annual global robot census based on vendor data. 
That number has grown about 11% a year since 2014, to a total of 2.7 million industrial robots in worldwide use. Industrial robots, descendants of the Unimate robot arm first installed at a General Motors factory in 1961, are the kind common in manufacturing, performing tasks like welding, painting, and assembly. They work hard, but they're not very smart. Also in 2019, 173,000 professional service robots were sold and installed, according to the Federation. That number is projected to reach 537,000 units a year, a three-fold increase by 2023. These are the kind of robots businesses use outside of manufacturing. They perform a wide variety of functions, including defense, warehouse automation, and disinfection in hospitals, end quote. Now, that count does not include a whole bunch of other stuff that probably could be included under some definitions of robots, including, quote, all the autonomous drones recently authorized to fly in the U.S. by the Federal Aviation Administration, the many autonomous vehicles made by Waymo and its competitors, the rapidly growing population of smaller wheeled delivery robots, ocean-crossing autonomous ships, tens of millions of robot vacuum cleaners, a half-century of unmanned spacecraft, and as they become ever more connected and smarter, perhaps even our homes. End quote. In ways large and small, robots are starting to seep into public life, not simply relegated to factories and the military. Heather Knight, an engineer and social roboticist at Oregon State University, was surprised one day in October to find a whole fleet of robots delivering contactless meals on campus. Robots have become common enough, she pointed out, that not even the folks at the robotics lab knew that this new team of robots was arriving on campus. And the robots across the world who were deployed for contactless deliveries last year are just one example of how COVID has changed the game. Dr. Robin Murphy, director of the Humanitarian Robotics and AI Laboratory at Texas A&M University, studied how robots were assisting humans during the pandemic and documented, quote, 326 different robots used in 29 different applications, telemedicine and hospital disinfection to quarantine enforcement, delivery, telepresence, construction, agriculture, logistics, and laboratory automation. Of these, 87% were existing robots adapted to help cope with the new virus, says Dr. Murphy. The sheer number and variety of mature robot technologies available for use in fighting the pandemic showed how companies and organizations are now spoiled for robot choice, she adds. And Oregon State's Dr. Knight says the pandemic likely accelerated adoption of robots. While humans are generally averse to change, wars and natural disasters can inspire very rapid shifts. There are different styles of innovation, but responding to necessity is one of the most impactful ones, she says, end quote. Of course, not all robots or forms of automation end up working out. MIMS cites the case of a Japanese robot hotel that had to eliminate more than half of its robot staff because they were more of a hindrance than a help. And this is something anyone who gets their groceries at Stop and Shop is all too familiar with. Their Marty robot that's supposed to help identify spills and hazards is way more of a hazard unto himself. But Mark Murrow, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, says the recession is causing an acceleration in automation, and it's likely to stick. In part because, despite automation causing a loss of jobs in the short term, in the long term it does actually lead to more jobs and economic productivity. That long-term vision, however, is often at the expense of some individuals who are never able to get back on their feet, even if the economy as a whole is doing better. 
Robots may not be wiping out the human race anytime soon, but they are becoming more and more a part of our everyday lives, in ways that probably even Karl Chopik wouldn't have imagined a hundred years ago, for better or for worse. Imagine if your favorite casino came with an undo button. That's exactly what you get with FanDuel Casino's Play It Again. Get up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. Play your favorite table games in hundreds of slots for real cash. And see for yourself why FanDuel Casino is the number one rated online casino app. Explore daily and weekly promotions. Play with live dealers. And if you ever have a question, our best-in-class customer support team is here to help 24-7. Sign up for FanDuel Casino at FanDuel.com PA3 today and play it again with up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. 21 plus and present in Pennsylvania. Must not have previously placed any wager on FanDuel Sportsbook, FanDuel Casino, Betfair Casino, Mohegan Sun Casino, or Stardust Casino. Refund issued as is non-withdrawable casino online site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG. When President Biden began his term with a flurry of executive orders last week, he did so from the newly redesigned Oval Office. It's customary for each president to give the room a bit of a refresh. Maybe choosing new carpeting and furniture, as well as decorating the office with artifacts, primarily from the White House collection. The decor is intended to set the stage for the type of presidency they hope to have, which prior presidents and other historical figures they will model their leadership style after, and which priorities they may have. President Biden's office features a large amount of portraits and busts to that effect, including Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, Benjamin Franklin, Eleanor Roosevelt, Martin Luther King Jr., Alexander Hamilton, Cesar Chavez, Rosa Parks, and many more. But one item on a bookshelf in the office has caught people's attention. A moon rock from the Apollo 17 mission, apparently meant to symbolize the Biden administration's renewed commitment to science and the accomplishments of previous generations. Science journalist and volcanologist, how cool is that, Dr. Robin George Andrews took to Twitter to explain the history of that particular rock. So the rock is officially lunar sample 7601543 and was retrieved in 1972 by the crew of Apollo 17 astronauts, which included Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist who has ever been to the moon. That's just how it got to Earth, though. How the sample formed on the moon is the real story. And I'm going to read just about the whole thread from Dr. Andrews here without my commentary because he is a great writer and it's an excellent thread. So, quote... I don't know if you know this, but you should. The moon is a hole-punched volcanic crypt, a place sculpted by huge impacts and strange, epic effusions of lava. We don't know how the moon formed, but the leading theory, partly because it's the simplest, is that a Mars-sized protoplanet slammed into a magma ocean-covered baby Earth. The impact debris formed an orbiting disk, and it clumped together, et voila. A whole bunch of cool stuff happened after that. But our moon rock comes into the picture around 600 million years later, around the time giant space rocks were pelting the moon Marco Inaros style. They left some epic scars, mostly on the near side for some unknown reason. These bowl-shaped scars are big. One of them was 720 miles across. For comparison, the asteroid that slammed into Earth 66 million years ago, heralding the end of the age of the dinosaurs, was only 110 miles across. Scientists want to know how big and how fast meteors hit things. Sometimes they use math. Sometimes they fire rocks at things at 16,000 miles per hour. 
They then used these experiments to scale things up and work out what punched holes into the moon. Recent work using a 14-foot cannon to simulate impacts in a laboratory setting suggests that the rock that made a 720-mile chasm in the lunar nearside was no smaller than 150 miles across, nearly 12 times longer than Manhattan, and it had a mass of 28,000 trillion tons. This rock was once a protoplanet, another world trying to gather enough material to become a full-blown planet. It was almost there, but it clearly messed up at the last minute, smashing into the moon and destroying itself. It was probably moving at speeds in excess of 22,000 miles per hour. The impact, which was at an angle, unleashed more energy than the sum totals of the explosives dropped during both world wars, including both nuclear bombs. Debris was sent shooting across the surface of the moon, scratching out deep grooves in the ancient volcanic rock as if it were made of butter. It would have been an extraordinary sight to see, at least from a very safe distance. For reasons that remain completely baffling, there was a delay for a few hundred million years before lava, upwelling from deep below, or perhaps from the sides, poured into this giant crater. It makes sense that cracking open the crust and taking off lots of pressure on the moon's underworld would trigger enormous amounts of melting and magma to escape, but if so, why the long delay? Scientists have no idea why the delay exists. The gap between impact and eruption is like poking a hole in a water balloon as a kid, but not seeing any water leak out until you're a pensioner. Either way, a giant sea of lava filled up this crater. Imagine you're standing on the shores of the Atlantic, for example, but instead of water, all you see is molten rock churning and effervescing all the way to the horizon. What a surreal view it would have been. As the lava met the frigid, unshielded lunar surface, an innocuous boulder sat near its shores. And for another 3.5 billion years or so, it sat there, occasionally knocked about by the odd micrometeorite. But just before Christmas of 1972, travelers from another world paid the lonely milky orb a visit. And on their travels, they found a curious-looking boulder glinting in the starlight. The rock was one of those forged in the ancient fires that made the 720-mile lava-filled crater. The lava sea, named Mare Ibrium, means Sea of Rains, except any rain back then were cooled pellets of molten fire. The rock, sample 76015, was shorn off the top of a large boulder. It was found to have lots of holes in it, bubbles trapped in the rock back when the titanic impact forged an ephemeral sea of molten rock. That meant the rock was an archival record, almost untouched since it formed during that primordial cataclysm of one of the events that defined the moon we see today. So the astronauts packed it up and brought it back home with them, and it was brought back and eventually stored in a vault at NASA's Johnson Space Center, kept in ultra-clean conditions. It's some of the most valuable material on Earth, and a satisfyingly definitive screw you to anyone who thinks we didn't land on the moon. End quote. Incredible, right? Dr. Andrews also points out that due to plate tectonics, water, the atmosphere, and, well, us, the deep ancient past of Earth has been destroyed. So the only way to uncover some of the big questions of the origins of the universe is to continue investigating the moon and other planets. And with lunar samples 76015143 now proudly displayed on a shelf in the Oval Office, perhaps this is a sign that we will see a continued commitment to that exploration going forward.
Speaking of ancient discoveries, a new study out of Edinburgh University and published in the Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences has analyzed the first known fossils of Tyrannosaur embryos. Close cousins of the Tyrannosaurus rex species, these samples show that babies from the larger Tyrannosaur genus were pretty huge, about three feet long when they hatched, or as the BBC describes them, about the size of a border collie. So quite a bit bigger than the baby raptor fossils Dr. Grant studied in Jurassic Park. The team says they were also born with a full set of teeth and capable of hunting pretty soon after hatching. When full-grown, these tyrannosaurs could be as much as 35 feet long and weigh 8 tons, just a tad smaller than the Tyrannosaurus rex. The study was based on 3D scans of a jawbone and claw found in North America, and lead author Dr. Greg Funston said, quote, We now know that they would have been the largest hatchlings to ever emerge from eggs, and they would have looked remarkably like their parents, both good signs for finding more material in the future, end quote. Though no tyrannosaur eggs have yet been found, the team was able to estimate they probably would have been about 17 inches long, and they were able to identify the genus based on several physical traits similar to adult tyrannosaurs, including the pronounced chin. Next up, Dr. Funston is hoping to scan the fossils further to study the tooth development, which may answer more questions such as how long the tyrannosaurs spent in the eggs before hatching. Well, that is it for today. As always, this show is produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird. I hope you all had a great weekend, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 